Good morning. A quick announcement before we begin. Uh, as you heard in our announcements earlier today, we're going to have two services on Easter, one at the courthouse steps at 8 a.m., and then we'll have one here on Sunday morning. And you might think, hey, there are two. I only need to go to one. We need you at both. They're different. We need you at the 8 a.m. service. Why? It's primarily an evangelistic service. It's right in the middle of our borough. It's on the courthouse steps. People might be walking by, passing by. Some people who would never come to church might be willing to come to an outdoor service to hear that. Some people who might not be willing to gather in a building right now for any number of reasons might be willing to go to an outdoor service. So one, I'd encourage you, invite an unbelieving friend. Come because critical mass draws attention. We need you to be there to help as we proclaim the gospel together, not just in the preaching of God's word, we will have a time for a sermon, but as we sing Christian songs right in the middle of our community, in a community that we are all well aware of, desperately needs to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're able to be with us, we need you at both services. We'd love to have you there, and then you can come and eat this not filling breakfast that Mike told us about. Marissa, wherever you are, that's not me, Mike said it, Okay. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word uh, with us as we study the Scripture now. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or that you're sitting in. The large numbers are chapter numbers, small numbers are verse numbers, and you can just take that home with you if you'd like to have a copy of God's Word that you can read and study. If you're a guest, we're actually in the midst of a series of sermons. We've been focusing on the Gospel of Mark since the fall of 2019. We are coming to the end. We're in really the last full chapter of Mark's Gospel this morning. And now Mark writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole, the whole, the whole, whole, whole battalion. And they clothed him in a cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! 
And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Father, we have sung about the ancient words, and now we have read them, and we need your help. These words are eternal truth. We ask that you would write them on our hearts. But Father, there is a sense in which we are too familiar with them, and we have become numb to how severe these moments are for our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would shake us this morning, that we would see again afresh the sufferings of the Son of God for His people that He so loved. Father, as we think of these words, perhaps it's not that we're too familiar with them. It's perhaps that we just simply do not want to take them in or we cannot take them in. They are so harsh. We ask God that you would help focus our attention on the suffering of Christ. We thank you for His suffering for us. His endurance for us. That he gave his life for us. May the believers here today be encouraged. And Father, for any who are not yet Christians, may today be the day of salvation for them. And we ask all of this in the name of the only Savior, the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Amen. As the sun rises on Friday, those who conspired against Jesus have already convicted him of blasphemy. Just look in chapter 14, verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, as we turn our attention to chapter 15, they must convince the Roman governor that Jesus needs to die, a task that they will find much harder than they ever anticipated. Our text has three movements this morning. Jesus in the hands of Pilate. Jesus in the hands of the mob. Jesus in the hands of the soldiers. Notice first, Jesus in the hands of Pilate. Look again at verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Mark tells us that the trial before Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, begins in the early morning hours on Friday as he begins to slow down the narrative pace of his gospel once again. To put what I said into perspective, it's helpful to consider the entire structure of Mark's gospel for just a moment. Three years of Jesus' life are recorded from chapter 1, verse 14, to chapter 10, verse 52. Three years and ten chapters. Five days of Jesus' life are recorded from chapter 11, verse 1, to chapter 14, verse 72. 
three years in ten chapters, five days in four chapters. Good Friday is the singular focus of chapter 15, verses 1 through 47. Three years in ten chapters, five days in four chapters, one day in one chapter. Now, if you know anything about math, and I know very little, about 40% of Mark's gospel is the final week of Jesus' life. About a fifth of, of Mark's gospel is devoted to this day, one day of Jesus' life. Mark even gives us time indicators so that we can keep track of the day's events. If you're a person who likes to write in your Bible, just underline them this morning. Verse 1, and as soon as it was morning, drop down to verse 25, and it was the third hour, or 9 a.m., then drop down to verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, or about noon, then drop down to verse 34, and at the ninth hour, or about 3 p.m., and then drop down to verse 42, and when evening had come, Mark does not want us to get lost as he draws our attention to the significance of these events in particular on the final day of Jesus' earthly life as he is, verse 1, led bound from the courtyard of the high priest to the magnificent palace of Herod the Great, built on the western ridge of the upper city where Pilate would reside while he stayed in Jerusalem. At this point, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, and the whole council of the Sanhedrin probably think that they can encourage Pilate to conduct this uh, trial relatively quickly before most of the city even knows that Jesus has been arrested. So they grab Jesus, and they rush him over under the cover of darkness, meditating on their zeal. Matthew Henry said this, The unwearied industry of wicked people and doing that which is evil should shame us for our backwardness and slothfulness and that which is good. Fellow believers, Christians, have you grown weary in doing good? Are you slothful in relation to holy and divine things? Are you reluctant to give your time in service to the Lord? Everybody's busy. That's not unique to you, and to be quite frank, that's not unique to our century. Every time, people are always saying, I'm too busy for the things that I have in my life. I can't answer these questions for you, but I do know that if some people spent as much time studying their Bible as they do studying their March Madness brackets or window shopping on Facebook Marketplace or reading political hit pieces about all of the conservatives or all of the liberals, then their walk with Christ would be radically different. The unwearied industry of wicked people and doing that which is evil should shame us for our backwardness and slothfulness and doing that which is good. Friends, have you grown slothful in your walk with Christ? So verse 1, the religious leaders deliver Jesus to the governor outside of the praetorium to avoid defilement so that they don't render themselves incapable of participating in the rest of the festivities during the week. But have you ever actually stopped to ask yourself, why? Why is it that Jesus needs a Jewish trial and a Roman trial when they have already condemned Jesus to death? They've already decided the verdict. 
Jesus needs to die. Jesus should be put to death. Jesus should not be tolerated any longer. Jesus should not be allowed to live. So why does Jesus even need to be brought to Pilate in the first place? Because they wanted nothing short of execution. And the Romans prohibited those whom they governed from having the power of the sword, not only to keep them subjugated, but from executing the citizens that actually collaborated with Rome. Oh, the irony is present in Mark's gospel. The only way for the Jews to do to Jesus what they thought he was deserving of was to collaborate with the very government that was oppressing them. So they deliver the accused to Pontius Pilate, a man history would have completely forgotten had it not been for his part in this drama. Now, anybody familiar with the Gospels as a whole knows that the religious leaders, they come and they accuse Jesus of many things when they bring him before Pilate. But Mark draws our attention to only one accusation in verse 2 when Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? Careful, reader. will ask, how did Pilate even know to ask that? Well, that's what they've been accusing him of. Here is the one who calls himself the king of the Jews. Put him to death. Here is the one who thinks of himself as a king. The question of Jesus' identity continues to loom large in Mark's gospel. It is absolutely central to the entirety of this chapter. And again, if you're a person who likes to write in your Bible, just circle every time you see the word king. Verse 2, the king of the Jews. Verse 9, the king of the Jews. Verse 12, the king of the Jews. Verse 18, the king of the Jews. Verse 26, the king of the Jews. Verse 32, the king of Israel. Who is Jesus? Mark has been answering that question for us for a long time, friends. He is the Christ who has come, Mark 10, 45, to give his life as a ransom for many. But he is, Mark 15, the king. He is the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, heir of the Davidic throne. And to him, the prophets tell us, dominion and glory and a kingdom will be given that all peoples in all nations from all languages should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that shall never pass away. But Jesus' answer in Mark's gospel seems less than forthcoming, doesn't it? Look at his response to Pilate's inquiry in verse 2. You have said so. Now, after the very direct response in chapter 14, verse 62, the response that we have been looking for throughout the entirety of Mark's gospel, who is Jesus? Jesus never answers. And then Jesus finally says, I am. We come to chapter 15, and if we're honest, his response is less than stellar. But it likely has to do with the fact that Pilate just simply cannot comprehend the type of king that Jesus is. He's the king of a kingdom without any physical territory and no military to fight for it. That is entered by repentance from sin and faith in him as God's Messiah. Surely all of this would have sounded like foolishness to Pilate. Senseless talk. Madness. Unbeliever, non-Christian who is here with us today, first of all, thank you for being here. We are so glad that you've chosen to worship with us. But I wonder if this describes you. When you hear 
your Christian friends or family or people in this church today speak of a resurrected dead man doling out eternal life to people who trust in him, it all sounds like nonsense to you, doesn't it? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself why? The Bible tells us why. Why it sounds like complete nonsense to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The enemy of your soul does not want you to see that redemption comes in Jesus Christ. You do not understand, not because you're more intelligent or less intelligent or more good-natured than all of the non-good-natured people who have gathered here today, but because the enemy of your soul, Satan, longs to blind you from truth so that you would perish for all eternity. Well, God has been so merciful to you today. He has brought you to this church. You have heard the Scripture read. You have sung songs, or at least listened to us sing songs of redemption. You have now been placed in a position where you are listening to a sermon. And friends, we are pleading with you, come to Christ. Do not harden your hearts. Do not close your eyes. Open them right now and see the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Hear the goodness of God and how he saves sinners like Drew. He will forgive you of your sins this very minute if you cling to Christ. He is an all-sufficient Savior, and he will never cast you out. Friends, do not harden your hearts. Do not leave here without asking, what does it mean to follow this Jesus? See the glory of the triune God in the face of Jesus Christ. Come. It all sounded like absolute nonsense to Pilate, completely nonsensical. But the chief priests understand exactly what Jesus is saying. So, verse 3, they accused him of many things. Now, we're left to imagine what kind of foolish and baseless things they said while Jesus was standing there. He's been inciting the nation. He forbids payment to Caesar. He's been making himself out to be an insurrectionist Messiah. Nothing, they say, amazes Pilate. But something does. Look at verse 4. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. At this point in Mark's gospel, we have seen people who have been amazed by everything in Jesus' life. From his teaching with authority, to his miracles, to his transfigured glory, to his determination to go to Jerusalem. But now, it is Jesus' silence that amazes Pilate, because he knows that his life is on the line. No defense equals guilt under Roman law. His silence condemns him. And Pilate is amazed because Jesus stands there and does not do what anyone else does. He stands there and does not do what you and I do. When someone falsely accuses us, what do we do? Ah, I didn't do that. No, 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 that's not what I said. No, 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 it was her. It was him. Any parent will tell you that that is exactly what takes place when you have multiple kids in a controversy. 
Jesus stands there. No need to justify himself, completely silent. Jesus in the hands of Pilate. Notice second, Jesus in the hands of the mob. Look at verse 6. Not the feast. He used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For you perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, And what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. As the scene unfolds, it becomes abundantly clear, even in Mark's gospel, that Pilate did not think that Jesus was guilty of a capital offense. But with a mob standing at his front door, what was Pilate to do? So Mark introduces a possible avenue for setting Jesus free that was available to Pilate. The practice of releasing one prisoner during the Passover. You see it in verse 6. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. There is no historical documentation for this practice outside of the Gospels. But it is hard to imagine that the evangelists would have fabricated this kind of story because it would have been so easy for the original audience to say, that kind of thing never happened. And it makes historical sense as a gesture toward the Jews since Passover commemorated freedom from bondage. The Romans wanted to appear benevolent. We are benevolent dictators. Every dictator wants to be thought of that way. The possibility allowed Pilate, cunning as ever, to offer the crowd a choice. Verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He offers a choice, Jesus or a man named Barabbas, a man that Mark identifies by his crimes, insurrection and murder, a man with a name that oddly enough means son of the father. Barabbas is the very kind of person for whom crucifixion was intended, and Pilate knew it. And unknowingly, Pilate offers them a choice between God's beloved son and a notorious criminal named the son of the father, Barabbas. Pilate certainly thought that the crowd would ask for Jesus' release because he had done nothing deserving death. While Barabbas had committed capital offenses that not only had endangered them as an oppressed people, but had killed some innocent people. Friends, it is just simply amazing who we'll listen to and lobby for when all we want to do is win, isn't it? He thought he understood the people. Surely, these people are more reasonable than that. I'll give them the innocent guy, and they can continue to hate him, and we will deal with Barabbas. But Pilate misjudged, seriously, just how far envy will drive someone. Look at verse 10. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
Envy had taken them this far, and now envy would take them over the edge as they lobbied for the death of the Son of God. Envy is an acceptable sin in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is that there are unacceptable sins that we will not tolerate at all. We won't tolerate and we speak against them quickly. Sins like homosexuality, abortion, abuse, injustice, pornography, racism, sexual dysphoria, gay marriage, and the like. And I want to be really clear, all of those are sins. All of those should be spoken against by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. While there are these unacceptable sins that we won't tolerate, there are also these acceptable sins that we tolerate and we never speak against. Sins like envy. And I just want to ask you this morning, have you ever stopped and considered what the Bible actually has to say about envy? If you have your Bible, I need you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Everybody turn there right now. Galatians chapter 5, we find that Paul is contrasting the life of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit with the life of those who are filled with the carnal desires of the flesh when he writes this to the church in Galatia in chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, when we read the next verse, pay very careful attention, friends. We should always slow down when we read verses like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, the Bible tells you that envy will send you to hell. Envy is coveting what someone else has. Money, opportunity, a spouse or a different spouse that you'd rather be with, children, or more children that you'd rather have, education, good looks, personality traits, experience, gifting, and things like these. Envy is destructive. It is an acid that destroys its own container. And Mark tells us it led the religious leaders to murder Jesus. Jesus. Now, perhaps you're thinking right now, Pastor, I would never murder anyone for something that I don't have. Well, I can assure you that the religious leaders probably thought the same thing. But I wonder, what do you think of that rage that simmers just underneath the surface when you see other people have what you think should be yours? How do you respond biblically in those moments when you see that other people have what you feel should be yours. I'm entitled to that. I've been here long enough. I've paid my dues. It should be mine. When you see that they have something not only that you have, but perhaps 
will never have and never get. And we justify it. It's not that bad. It's only envy. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, envy must not exist among the people of God. And if there are people that you are treating differently because of your envy, that is exactly what I'm talking about. If you cannot rejoice with those who rejoice and celebrate what others have without feeling a deep sense of entitlement in your own life, then I want to warn you and say that perhaps envy is corroding your heart and hardening your heart and preventing you in this moment from rejoicing in the glory of the gospel. God has given freely to you if you are a believer, even if you do not have all of the same things that other people have because you have the most important same thing that all believers have, the indwelling spirit by the free grace of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Why should I be envy? Yes, I am going to heaven. I will live with God forever. If you're envious, repent. If you find yourself entitled, repent. If you find your envy leading you to sins of jealousy, repent. Envy comes thinking that what other people have should be mine. Do not coddle it. It is an unacceptable sin, and it desires to destroy your soul. By verse 11, the crowd turns against Jesus. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Now up to this point in the narrative, Jesus' foes and enemies have been the religious leaders. So why now did the crowds finally turn against him? Well, the early morning hours of these events may indicate that the Sanhedrin had gone and gathered all of the people that they needed from the crowds who actually are not really for Jesus. And those who are actually would come to his defense are just rousing after the previous day's festivities. But Mark also tells us that the chief priests work the crowds, stirring them up to ask for Barabbas. So when Pilate returns to the proceedings, he is shocked to hear the crowds cry out in verse 11, Barabbas! He asks them again in verse 12, what is he to do with Jesus, the King of the Jews? And for the first time, the words are uttered in verse 13, crucify him. Pilate protests Jesus' innocence. Why? What evil has he done? But the crowds cry out all the louder. At this point, sin has taken root. They are completely irrational. They're not listening to anything. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. What evil has he done? Crucify him. Crucify him. They don't want to listen to reason. Crucify him. Just like all of us in our sin. Not listening to anyone or anything. So in what is an incredibly sad verse, Pilate perceives that he may have a riot on his hands and he relents to the crowd's demands in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. 
He was shrewd enough to realize that Jesus was innocent and had been brought to him out of envy. But he was too weak of character to do anything about it. Friends, when faced with the demands of people and the cries of the crowd, do you satisfy them? Are you afraid to take a stand against your friends when you know that they are wrong? Are you afraid to speak to people when you know that they are saying things that are misrepresentations of other people, or gossiping, or lying, or slandering? Are you afraid to take a stand in those moments? Do you remain silent while your colleagues malign and misrepresent others? Do you placate the crowds in your life? Are you perceptive enough to see that it's wrong? but too weak of character to do anything about it. By his actions, he washes his hands, indicating a refusal to accept responsibility for the decision. Am I my brother's keeper? It's not my business anyways. Do whatever you want. I didn't say it. I didn't do it. You think of all of the ways that we justify sin in our life. The Bible tells us that that's how people justified sin in the first century too. So one who seeks a kingdom with swords and clubs goes free. While the one who refuses an earthly kingdom is condemned to death as the people choose a bandit over their Messiah. Jesus in the hands of Pilate. Jesus in the hands of the mob. Notice third, Jesus in the hands of the soldiers. Let's look again at verse 16. These are hard verses to read. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. They put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. Prior to his mocking by the soldiers, Mark tells us, Pilate had Jesus, verse 15, scourged. Roman flogging was vastly different than the Jews' 39 lashes, 40 minus 1. Those condemned to death were actually tied to a post so that they were bent over. And then one or multiple Roman guards would come with leather straps that had pieces of shard and bone and metal at the end of the whip. And they would begin to beat the person that was bent over. The shards would dig into their back, pull out flesh, so that before long, bone and muscle tissue was seen clearly and the organs were exposed. The scourging was so terrible that a great many people actually died during the scourging. When we pause to think of the fact that Jesus was scourged, we see his incredible endurance, that he actually made it to the cross. Beat with untold number by one or multiple people before he was humiliated on the cross. He'd been pummeled by Roman captors. Then, verse 16, they led him away to the praetorium 
where the Roman soldiers begin to mock him. And they go get a purple robe, a sign of royalty, and they put it on him. And they take a crown of thorns, and you think of the charge, and they set it on his head, and they're hitting him with a reed on top of his head. Why are they doing that? Because they're driving it deeper into his skull. And then they anoint Jesus with their spit. Have you ever been spit upon? How shameful it is. And then they taunt him with false homage. Hail, king of the Jews. They rightly acclaim what they do not believe. Jesus' kingship is revealed only in the midst of mockery, beatings, and torture in Mark's gospel. And when they're finished, with that, first discouraging, then a great and terrible mocking, then they lead him to the cross. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. The most important truths in this chapter are Christological. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the King of Israel, is condemned to die by crucifixion. We see here the Savior of the world, mocked, beaten, and rejected by his own people and by their captors. He is condemned by a man who believed him to be innocent. The one condemned actually spoke the world into existence and sustains it by the word of his power and is the object of angelic worship. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He resuscitated the dead. And they still hated him. Why did they hate Jesus? Because they were envious of him. He came into the world to save sinners. To serve. Not to be served. Brothers and sisters who feel that other people should serve you, look to the Savior. His life was one of perpetual service for you. He lived every moment of his life in service to you. Men especially who think that women and children are called to serve you, repent. No one is commanded to serve you. Jesus Christ, the greatest man to ever live, served everybody he ever met. Friends, we should stand. Or better, we should fall on our faces in amazement of the wondrous love of Jesus. Have you grown so familiar with the events of Jesus' death that you no longer feel the amazing grace of God and the endurance of the Savior and the wonder that He did it all for you? We must never forget, as we consider these events, all that Jesus experienced before he was even nailed to the cross. He was despised. He was rejected. The apostle Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to you, or for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He did it all for us, friends. For us and for our salvation, if we would repent of our sins, 
so that we might have everlasting life. We ask you today, have you ever done that? Repented of your sins and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever turned away from sin? I'm not simply saying, have you convinced yourself, I've repented. If you are not turning away from sin, then perhaps you are not the believer you think yourself to be. Sin is, uh, repenting from sin is turning away from it. Turning your back on it. Walking away from it in your life. If you are coddling sin and not actively putting it to death in your life, if you have grown familiar with it and refuse to cast it off, whatever it costs, then perhaps you are not a believer at all. Friends, the gospel tells us what every person is called to is to acknowledge that they are a sinner. A sinner who has been separated from the holy God that our brother Dan spoke to us about earlier today. A God who is infinitely good, infinitely loving, infinitely kind, infinitely patient, infinitely forbearing with sinners like us. Our sin has completely estranged us from Him. We're not just slightly down. We're not even on the same track because of our sin. It has radically separated us from God. And as a result of that, we stand in a very precarious situation, literally hanging between heaven and hell. Without Jesus Christ, we will perish eternally. But Jesus has come. In the fullness of time, He has come to redeem His people who repent of those sins and cling only to Him, asking Him to forgive them of their sins and empower them to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Believer, embroiled in your sin, ask God to strengthen you that you might flee from the sin that will kill you. Unbeliever, know this. We are telling you today of the amazing mercy of God. He will forgive even you, no matter what you've done, even if you should be put in prison for the rest of your life for it. If you repent, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The amazing love of God. As our loyal friend J.C. Ryle said, may we never rest till we can say by faith, Christ is mine. I deserve hell, but Christ has died for me. And believing in Him, I have hope of heaven. Do you have hope of heaven today? Believer, take heart. Unbeliever, come. We would love to share the gospel with you. I'll be in the courtyard after the service today. Any of the members of our church would love to tell you about this mercy that God pours out on sinners who repent. It is not insignificant that the Jewish leaders choose Barabbas and in so doing choose Caesar instead of Jesus as their king. They acknowledged a human power they thought that could help them maintain their own status. A power that ultimately turned against them and destroyed Jerusalem, the temple in which they worshipped, and decimated their people. The next generation paid dearly for the sins of their fathers. Today people refuse to follow Jesus to be their king for much the same reason. They just want to maintain the status quo in their life. And they'll follow anyone who will help them maintain it. Is that true for you? Are you making choices upon short-term goals and personal comfort rather than following Christ? Is that true of you? The religious leaders experienced the great privilege of hearing Jesus speak. 
watching him perform miracles, and still they claimed another king to be their king besides Jesus. Is that true of you? If we looked at your life and listened to your conversations and the things that you think and what you write in your personal diaries, would people look at all of that, all of the private moments of your life and all of the public moments of your life, and think, Jesus is king for this person? That's what's the overflow of their mouth, the meditation of their heart, what they're thinking about regularly. Or perhaps would they say, this other thing is their king. This other person is their king. Friends, we must never forget the great danger into which one falls by continually rejecting the light as the religious leaders did. The words of the proverb are true here. Proverbs 1 verse 24. Since I called out and you refused, extended my hand and no one paid attention, since you neglected all my counsel and did not accept my correction, I, in turn, will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. Finally, we just need to think for a moment about Pilate. Pilate lets an unbelievable opportunity just slip through his fingers, doesn't he? It's clear that he does not believe Jesus to be guilty. He even tried to set Jesus free. But when courage and honor hung in the balance, Pilate chose political expediency. Does that describe you? Under intense pressure, we might feel threatened. They'll fire me. They'll make fun of me. They won't want to talk to me anymore. They won't like me. But unlike Pilate, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must take a stand for what is true, even if the consequence is personal loss. Even, even when it seems that everything we hold dear will fall away. Because if we do not, we will lose something even more valuable. Our integrity. When you refuse to take a stand for Christ because of the shame that you are afraid to personally experience, what do you think that that communicates to your unbelieving family and friends about what you think of the truth and beauty and wonder of the gospel? Saving face for what? For what? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. And they were born not of the will of man, nor of the flesh, but of the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious gospel. And we ask in the name of Jesus that you would help us to meditate on these truths rightly now. Father, we ask that you would be merciful to us in these moments as we reflect not only on the beauty of the gospel, but celebrate your work of grace in the life of another believer. We ask, Father, that you would help us to sing and to give praise to this Christ who is now ours by faith. And we ask all of this. In the name of Jesus, amen.